What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast that by episode 146, we hope you both want and need. My name is Lindsay Gibbs. I'm the author of the Power Plays newsletter. And as you might have guessed already, I will be your host for today's podcast. And I am so excited to be joined by my two dear friends and co-host, Shereen Ahmed in Toronto, Canada, who I hear has some big time hot takes on the dunk contest, which we will get to very shortly. Hi, Shereen. How are you? Good morning. I'm mad, but we will talk about that. <laughs> I'm really shocked that we have we have strong feelings out the gate. That's very unusual for us. So... <laughs> And coming from the Penn State area herself, assistant, I forget where it is exactly, in Pennsylvania. What's the name of that place? State College. State, State College. college. Yeah. I kept wanting to say College Park, but that's Maryland. Right. So anyways, they're all very similar names, all these all these university towns. We've got Penn's assistant professor of history and African-American studies. Is that correct? Did I do that right? Yes, it is. <laughs> Um, Dr. Amir Rose Davis. Hi. Hi. <laughs> All right. I'm off to a really smooth start. So we're just going <laughs> to keep going. Today's episode, we are going to talk some WNBA free agency news, uh, because as you might guess, that is literally all I am thinking about these days. Um, then we're going to have a very exciting interview with you, for you. Amira interviewed Jade Withrow of Netflix's Cheer about her experience and competitive cheerleading and the reactions to the docuseries. So that is a big treat. And then we're going to have a look back at some black big moments in black history for black history month and kind of connect the past with the present as we love to do. But first, as I mentioned, <laughs> the dunk contest. Shereen, I'm just going to throw it to you. Do you think that justice was uh, handed out? Do you think that this was a fair uh, contest? Okay, so let's start with the fact that I do love and respect Dwayne Wade. Let's just start there. Oh, okay, yes. let's go there. And I, I have love a feeling me, a butt is coming. <laughs> uh, there's a definite butt here. However, and I do appreciate me some common. I do. I feel like he's in the Pharrell level of never aging. Now, I thought that Scottie Pippen and Chadwick was and Candace Parker, that was a great it was a great, great group of judges. I felt that way. However, when Aaron Gordon does what he has to do and literally jumps over Taco, who's like seven feet, and does not win with the windmill smash into the net, I have a problem. Now, we all know Dwayne Wade shows solidarity with people he loves, but that doesn't mean that you give someone a lower score for a dunk than they deserve. I do not understand why Aaron Gordon did not have tens across the board. I find that suspicious. I want to trust the judges for this absolutely concocted fake 
thing, but it's a real thing. There's a real ass trophy that comes around. And particularly what happened with Zach Levine in 2016, you know, there's a bit of sadness there for Aaron Gordon. So I don't feel like, and, and for those that don't understand what I'm talking about, Dwayne Wade formerly played with Jones Jr. And in Miami. So Derek Jones Jr. was up in the final against Orlando's uh, Orlando Magic's Aaron Gordon. And you're like, I've never actually heard of these people, you know, because they're not like main starters or superstars, but they are in the right of this competition. The skills challenge is a big deal for All-Star Weekend, which is happening in Chicago. So I watched with my family and we were all like, you know, after every dunk, particularly, we're like, oh, oh, even my like nephew was doing it and he's two and he's really cute. But I'm sorry, I left a little sad. Do I believe in the system? Do I really believe in the system anymore? No, I don't. Sorry. And if you can't believe in the system for the all-star dunk contest, what can you believe in? Amira. There's no hope for any other institution. Amira, did you watch this? Do you have any takes? I just caught it like this morning, like I refreshed it because everybody was <laughs> quite angry. <laughs> so my only take was that <laughs> I can't, I can literally muster no energy to get worked up about any of it. <laughs> um, but I did really enjoy Candace's face. <laughs> oh my God, Candace Parker. She's beautiful too. Like During AG's second dunk when he jumped over Taco was literally the funniest face I've ever seen. I love that instant meme type of thing. So that was my only kind of, I was surprised when I woke up to see how passionate people were being. I wasn't surprised by the passion, but, you know, sometimes the dunk contest is a snooze fest or it's kind of like blah. And this one seemed to be around the board really great and then ended in controversy. But yeah, I like could not muster up a single ounce of. <laughs> I mean, give the man a trophy. I like it's a it's a it's a all star skills competition. Like, give trophies to everyone. I really don't care. Like, everybody should feel good. Like, let's like make everybody feel happy. Like participation I, ribbons. <laughs> I don't even care at this point. I think the world is burning and everything's going to shit. And if somebody gets like, if they could have tied yeah. and had two trophies, it would have been wonderful, and then everybody would have been happy. And like, I mean, people would have obviously and still been mad because there's always something to be mad about but i am like unabashedly this week just team like self-care and yeah. being happy yeah and if it's ha- if it makes people happy to say people tied at a dunk contest then okay you know i i i, I think I, I think that tying is like is is a was was, was the plan actually a news report came out because i did some digging into this because I was upset it would they were supposed to tie essentially but you know I somebody went awry on the judges at the judges table and you know everyone's pointing fingers at Dwayne Wade saying because he played with Jones Jr that he was the one that scored Aaron Gordon t- too low well there's three other okay. people who scored him right, nine. I'm yeah. gonna cut this conversation off because we've we've established a good conspiracy theory to start the episode so I think <laughs> I think I, that's how I like to start every episode, to be honest. But we've got a bunch to talk about. So let's keep moving on. Before we do, though, I want to give a shout out to our patrons. Patreon.com slash burn it all down is how you make sure that we can keep doing this independent intersectional feminist podcast every single week. This is episode 146. We have not missed a single week. And um, we're super proud of that. And the only way is because of our supporters on our Patreon account. And we have some behind the scene footage and we have Patreon only segments for our supporters. Sometimes there's some merch involved. So be sure to get on that. 
All right. It's been a big week in WNBA uh, news because of free agency. Shireen, get us started. Thanks, Linz. And first of all, we will get into Lindsay's coverage on power plays about media coverage of this event, because that's always a very relevant topic to what we talk about. W. NBA free agency is basically for those that don't follow very, very closely or understand what's happening. It's a time where there is basically movement within the league for players and teams to sort of, I don't want to use exchange players, but sort of do trades and negotiate new contracts when they want to come and stuff like this. Now we saw some really big movement and there's a specific person whose work I've been following in addition to Lindsay's in addition to Howard Miguel, who I think is like really, he's like dedicated and following this for years. Matt Allentuck actually had a lot of, he had some really succinct writing and like roundup on SB nation, which is really interesting because he also commented. And I think this is very relevant that there wasn't a lot of necessarily drama in this league and I think that's a really interesting point and now that there's big movement from some main players from teams to teams and we'll get into that I think that's really interesting because I felt like there was some pretty good you got some Liz Cambridge drama this year I mean this past year I mean I remember seeing some drama but anyways the point is it will make the team's rivalries a little more intense when those big players like super megastars go up against their former teams so that was a point that I found really interesting so basically, some of the biggest moves so far is, and I'll just sort of round them up, Skylar Diggins actually has gone to Phoenix. Um, Angela McCautry has gone to Vegas. Katie, This was really fun for me. Katie Lou uh, Samuelson was at Chicago Sky, and Azri Stevens, Azri has actually been on our show before. I interviewed her. She was at the Dallas Wings. There was a trade between them, and so... Dallas took Katie Lou Samuelson and for a first round draft pick as well and gave Azri to Chicago. So now Azri Stevens joins her former UConn teammate, Gabby Williams and Kyla Anderson, who I'm currently obsessed with of Team Canada in Chicago. So I feel like Chicago might be my new favorite team. Nobody tell Kia Nurses, of course, and Leisha Clarendon, who is now with her at New York Liberty. So there's a lot of probably things that I'm missing, but of course I'm relaying this all back to how I feel about this. There's which a is lot basically of, the UConn players. So. Which is basically <laughs> UConn. Like, I mean, come on, let's be honest with that. Um, with the exception being the Canadians, right? Yes. So now that being said, I think there's a lot of really interesting things. And like Amira, Lynn, you can jump in anytime and give me your feelings because I want to hear them. But before we do that, I did want, Linda, I would love, love, love for you to talk about what you observed, what you saw, and how, how that's relevant to all this. Yeah. So like you said, and like Matt Ellentuck wrote at SB Nation, this has been one of the most exciting overall free agency um, kind of periods in WNBA history. And it's not by accident, right? I mean, we just signed this new CBA, which gave, which upped the cap spike a lot. So it gave teams more flexibility to work with. Another thing it did was it it took down, it de- decreased is the word I'm looking for, the amount of times that teams can apply the core designation to a player. So core, if you're familiar with like NFL stuff and like the franchise tag, that's essentially what it is. What it is is a team who has drafted a player and had a player puts this tag on them so that they can't enter free agency when they're supposed to be able to. It's a way, supposed to be a way to kind of keep the stars in their, you know, in markets. But what it ends up doing 
doing is really limiting player movement of your biggest stars. So because of that, you know, we had a, a case where uh, Dewana Bonner could be, you know, traded and finally leave Phoenix for the first time. Um, and she'd been there for 10 years since she was drafted. And now she's going to be in Connecticut, which is a huge power shift. We have John Quell Jones and Dewana Bonner, which, oh, my God. There's like no way anyone else on the court will ever get a rebound. <laughs> like, I just keep thinking about those games in Connecticut and getting a little scared. But it's been <laughs> but it's been really exciting because this is what the players have really worked for is to get to an off season where the players had a little bit more say and of course some of them are realizing that the grass isn't always greener, right? <laughs> some players are being traded that don't want to be traded and are realizing, but that's, that's part of the business too. You know, that's part of all of this as well. And it's been absolutely thrilling. We've had other free agency seasons that have had some drama, but it's usually like one or two storylines that kind of dominate everything. Like the Liz Cambay stuff last year, whereas this year it is just kind of been, it's been nonstop and it's been a lot more reminiscent of what we see in NBA or even NFL free agency where there's just round the clock stories happening. Unfortunately, it hasn't gotten anywhere near the coverage that an NFL or an NBA free agency season would get. And, you know, I wouldn't, would never expect it to be at that level yet. I feel like I'm, sometimes I feel like I'm the players being like, I'm not asking for millions yet. I'm just asking for a little bit more, you know. But what was disappointing is I documented on power plays. I spent over the period of two days on Tuesday and Wednesday, I watched about seven hours of ESPN talking head shows, which is a lot. (laughs) There were zero mentions of WNBA free agency. Once again, this was right in the thick of it. And I also looked at all the covers of the local papers in all these markets where a lot of drama was happening. And while there were a few that made the front page, Angel McCautry in Las Vegas is a was the best where she got like an above the fold front page of the sports section with a colored photo, got the really the star treatment. There were just a lot of other papers where the coverage was much more hidden, much more perfunctory. And one of the reasons I look at it like this, a lot of people got mad at me because they said, you know, if you're looking for coverage, here it is. Like this article was written this day. And but one of the reasons I did this in the way I did, which was looking at the front pages of newspapers and the big ESPN shows is because I want to see if the coverage will reach people who aren't looking for it, you know, who aren't trying to chase it down because that's how you grow and that's how you get new fans. And unfortunately, this to me really hit home that we're not even close to being there yet. And it was really disappointing because when you really look through these papers, when you really look, listen to all this ESPN talk shows, It's being filled with so much crap. (laughs) Like there is just, they are talking about so much crap that has zero stakes. And I'm like, couldn't you spend 10% of that time talking about these huge free agency stakes that are like big time stories? You could get so much exciting coverage out of this because the stakes are so much bigger. And so that was that was disappointing for for me because everything was so uh, exciting. Amira, what what are your thoughts? 
Well, I had more questions than thoughts. Um, my thought one was it was very exciting. Yes. And I really enjoyed watching everybody try to keep up, right? Which is, I think, the marker of a really fun, chaotic free agency, which is what we've come to expect in a lot of major sports leagues. I mean, NFL free agency is still three weeks away. Yeah. And we've had speculation and drama and all this stuff. And so I felt just as a kind of lay onlooker that that, that shift was palpable. But I just wanted to, I really appreciate your points about the media and all the other considerations of this, but I, I want to return to the game itself. And I, like you, was like, yo, Connecticut is stacked. Like, and this was mm-hmm. a team that was good last, like this, they, they were one game away this, from winning it all. Like, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to get your opinion on any other teams that you're now kind of, that you think were enhanced by moves made or teams that you think got worse? Well, let's start. I mean, in the Phoenix, the Phoenix Mercury now have Skylar Diggins-Smith, Diana Taurasi, and Brittany yeah. Kreiner, which yeah. is just yeah. like, I mean, those are three of your five, like those could very easily be, we don't know yet, but like three of your five starters on the Olympic team. There have also been rumors that Tina Charles was going to join them. Although if you look at the cap situation for Phoenix, that looks next to impossible now because they've been giving out some contracts that are head scratching. And I must say, what an... It's been a very weird feeling this week to look at some of these contracts that have given out and thinking they're too much. And I was like, this is a sign of progress. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, I mean, I'm they so were... glad I feel like some of these women are getting too much money. I mean, you know, it's all relative, yeah. of course. They deserve every penny, but, you know, within the system. So that's been kind of a fun thing going on. So Connecticut's going to get ridiculous. The Los Angeles Sparks. I mean, Christy Tolliver, who I covered a lot, she was on the Washington Mystics last year, huge part of their championship championship winning team, but she decided that she wasn't getting enough money. Essentially, Washington was offering her a lot of money for two years, but she wanted that third year guaranteed. And Washington was looking at its future and feeling like they couldn't promise that much money three years out because they were going to have to, they wanted to be able to sign a lot of their younger players. And she wanted that guaranteed third year. So she ended up going back to the Los Angeles Sparks, where she was before the Mystics, where she won a championship in 2016. So now she's reunited with Candace Parker and uh, Chelsea Gray and Neko Gumake. So that is going to be a big boost to their team as well. And I mean, in Vegas now, you have Angel McCautry, who, you know, people have forgotten about because she was injured for all of last season. So we didn't see her play in Atlanta, but she's now going to be there with, you know, Liz Cambage and Kelsey Plum and, you know, a- Asia Wilson. And so you've got another like, you know, Team USA Olympic Olympic gold medalist on that squad. And we're talking about all these teams and we haven't even mentioned the Seattle Storm who won it all two years ago. And the only reason they weren't in the conversation last year was because Brianna Stewart and Super both didn't play, but Super and Brianna Stewart will be back. So there are just so many teams going on, you know, so much excitement. I think the teams that are really kind of stuck at the bottom and are still stuck at the bottom are the Atlanta Dream and the Indiana Fever did not get much better. And um, it's been surprising to see the Minnesota Lynx. Of course, we love Cheryl Reeve here on Burn It All Down, but they've been very quiet this free agency season. And it's, you know, they need to make some moves because if it's one of those climates where if you're not improving, you're kind of going backwards. 
awards. <laughs> so yeah, I have a question. When does the WNBA season start? So it'll start in mid-May. And, and then, how will it be affected by the Olympics? How will it be affected by the Olympics? Because it'll take like, a month break for the Olympics. It'll take a okay. okay. It'll take a it'll take a break for the Olympics. So so that won't be a big issue. Although of course you'll have some players who play for international teams who will decide to play, you know, make different decisions about how much they're playing in the WNBA this season. We're just going to have to kind of wait and see. But yeah, there is a break for during Olympic play. And um, since it's Black History Month, I do just want to give a shout out. I think that, first of all, I love labor wins, as we all know. And let's never forget that the WNBA players themselves had to fight to get free agency in the first place. This was they got their first free agency through collective bargaining in 2003. Um, Pam Wheeler, who was the executive director of the Players Association for about 15 years, told me um, a couple years ago that that was her crowning achievement. And when I look back at the leaders of the Players Association, the executive directors of the association, so people who aren't in the league itself, um, you've basically had Pam Wheeler and Terry Jackson. And then if you look at the um, the presidents of the Players Association, so the players themselves, they've all been black women. So we're here during kind of the most pivotal time of so I need to give them a shout out sorry Coquise Washington was the first then you had Sonia Henning and then it was Tamika Catchings and now it's Neka Gwumake but you we're here reveling in the most one of the most exciting free agency periods women's sports has ever seen it's taken a lot of work to get here and we we have black women 100% to think about it to thank for it so you know shout out All right, next we have our interview with Cheer. It's now my absolute pleasure to chat with Jade Withrow. Um, Some of you might have already watched Cheer on Netflix. We'll be talking about it a lot on the podcast. You've already heard us mention it here and there. And I noticed Jade during when I was watching Cheer, and I immediately wanted to reach out and chat with her about her experience both on the Navarro team, but in competitive cheerleading as a whole. So Jade, welcome to Burn It All Down. Hello, everybody. <laughs> so first things first, this show has <laughs> just taken off. What has this been like the last few weeks? It has honestly been so insane. I, you know, as we were filming the show, I, it never like came into mind like how big it really would get. Um, you know, there's been other shows that have tried to film cheerleading and get it out into the world about you know everything that goes on behind the scenes, but this show was really the best that we've had as a whole for the cheer world, and it's really gotten personal lives as well as the hard work that goes behind the scenes and it's feels so good for people that don't even know anything about cheer to be watching the show and like actually appreciate appreciate it because I feel like it's just kind of been one of those sports that have just kind of been ghosted or not really been taken seriously so it's just been really crazy and it feels really good for all of us Certainly. Now, how did you get into cheerleading? 
So I did gymnastics for like one year when I was nine and I took about three years off and I started becoming friends with this girl in seventh grade that did cheerleading and I was still keeping up with my tumbling and I wanted to get back into um, some kind of sport and so I just started going to practice with her and I just fell in love with it instantly. I've been doing it ever since. That's great. And I think that one of the the things that the docuseries does so well at showing is like, this is absolutely a sport. The injuries, the kind of the strength, the conditioning, it's certainly a sport and we should consider it like that. What, what has the sport meant to you as an athlete? And honestly, I have given ever since I've been in cheerleading since seventh, eighth grade, I have done absolutely nothing but focus on it because it's just so addicting like I've fallen so in love with it and I just went head first into everything I worked my butt off for so many years like I was in the gym 24 7 I would go to school and then I'd force my mom to go and drive me to the gym I'd be there all day every weekend throughout the week and you know, it's just been so addicting and, you know, the feeling of putting all this hard work throughout the year and then going and performing with your team and doing well at competitions and going to the big national championships or the world championships at the end of the year and going and doing your best with the team and walking off the floor knowing you couldn't do anything more is really what keeps like keeps people coming back because that feeling is just so indescribable. Yeah, and then one of the things that was, I think people had a very visceral reaction to was all of the kind of injuries and the way that it seems like next one up, which certainly when you're building towards a championship is a mentality. But also we've had a lot more conversations in recent years about like brain injury in football and the cost of injuries in sports. What do you think about these conversations around public health and, and sport and cheer? How does cheerleading fit into that? What, how do you prepare for injury? Honestly, with cheerleading, there's really no way. I mean, to prepare for it, you kind of just, as an individual, it would be very smart of you to take kind of like preventative physical therapy, but there's really no way to prepare for it other than if you're trying a new stunt or skill to have others around you try to be there and catch you if you fall but cheerleading is so dangerous because you're just throwing yourself around and you know anything can happen at at any time even if you've done a skill for years you can show up one day and you know just in the middle of your skull just roll or break your ankle and it's just so different it's so harsh on your body I don't think that I honestly think that cheerleading has more injuries than any sport just because it is a complete full contact sport all the time and if you're on a team that practices as much as we did at Navarro or at Athletics like we practice every single day and so just going through that it could be very dangerous but we also try to take as much precaution as we can with having people around and doing things as safely as possible 
So now you uh, have left Navarro. You're at Kennesaw State right now, right? Yes, ma'am. So is that a transition that a lot of people make out of Navarro to four-year schools? Yes, typically. You know, there are some people that just want to go and get their two-year degree, but for the most part, a lot of cheerleaders do transfer to a four-year university afterwards. And so how is it being at Kennesaw State? Is it a similar kind of competitive environment? Is it a different type of cheerleading? What is that adjustment like? Yeah, so it is um, just a different type of cheerleading because at Navarro, we compete um, with partner stunts. So every single stunt that we do is just one boy and one girl. Whereas here at Kennesaw, we're in a completely different division. Um, We're small co-ed. D1, I believe. And so it's more of a group stunt. There's three people underneath and one flyer on top um, for the main stunts. And that is just a little bit of a transition. But, you know, that's typically what you do when all-star cheerleading. So it's not too much different from the competitive side from all-star rather than um, Navarro, but typically, like the competitive side is just about the same because we all go to the same competition and it's just as important in every single division. And so it's very serious here, too, as well. That's great. So, one of the things I noticed in, in terms of it is when I first heard about Kennesaw's cheerleading program, it was actually a few years ago when a few cheerleaders took a knee and protested in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. And it seems to me like there is more women of color on the Kennesaw team and on other teams versus your experience at Navarro. Is that right? Yes. Typically, that's what you see. Um, But I don't really know if there's any reasoning behind maybe just the areas or the amount of people that try out. But I'm I'm not really too sure on like the details of why that is. Yeah, it's interesting because I think for a few of us, like millennials, Bring It On was like our first depiction of cheerleading, which obviously is showing, you know, a white school learning different moves and then, you know, Gabrielle Union and the Clovers um having a bit more using different music or different rhythms or throwing different stunts and having different resources. So I think that, you know, the kind of conversation around race and cheerleading is still there. But I wasn't sure if it was a sport that you see getting more diverse. Um, because I was shocked when I started watching cheer. I was like, oh, wow, this is not my concept of what cheerleading looks like. Yeah, no, definitely at Navarro. And just cheerleading as a whole, I do see it getting more diverse. You know, just a few years ago, I cheered at a different gym or just, you know, just being a little bit um, younger and watching cheer videos from a few years back. You could even just tell the difference of how that was like on the floor, like there would be some gyms or teams that would have you know, people of color on the floor and they would be each other's opposites. Um, So it was a little bit like more pleasing to the eye instead of just having everyone just kind of mixed up. And I think gyms and teams are starting to 
definitely bring in more of that and it's starting to attract more people to just kind of get out of their comfort zones maybe because they are seeing that and it has really grown um, to typically everybody. So That's great. So now what, this was a big point raised on the docuseries, what is the future? What happens after college? Is there any way to continue cheering? What does it look like? Yeah, so after college and kind of what I'm doing right now, so I chose not to do um, all-star cheer this year. I'm just focusing on school, but you could also um, try out for the USA team. There's no age limit on cheerleading other than college, but there's no age limit on all-star or for USA. It's really just when your body can't handle it anymore. But yeah, after college, if you want to keep cheerleading competitively, if you try out and make Team USA, it only goes on through um, January through April and You have to complete little challenges every week on your own. And then really as a team, you only practice for about two and a half weeks and then you compete. And so it's really easy for you to be able to keep doing what you love, but also be working a job or just living a normal life outside of it. And then, you know, if you don't want to keep competing, you, you could, you know, become a choreographer or a coach or, you know, just still be in that all-star world if you're really into it, which I honestly see myself doing this for a very long time personally. Yeah. Would you like to coach eventually? So I've actually coached before and I would still love to do it now, but my passions, I still have a passion for cheerleading, but I think I'm just going to try and compete as long as I can. But aside from that, I kind of just want to start learning more about myself and life. And that's what's made the transition here. I kind of saw a whole lot easier because I actually have time to focus on myself. And I'm realizing that I would really like to go into the fashion industry and open up a store one day. So that's kind of the plan right now. Wow. Now, so if I could just go back for a second, who does Team USA compete against? So I would say, so Team USA is almost, it's like the closest thing you can get for cheerleading in the Olympics. You know how in the Olympics, you know, there's USA and Japan and all all these different countries. It's the same thing, except it's just not in the Olympics. It's just a different, instead of the all-star worlds, it's just called ICE worlds. And it's right after the all-star worlds in Florida. And then um, some years, other countries will invite us to go and compete there. And so actually this year, we have the amazing opportunity to go and compete in South Korea in September. Wow. That's yeah, awesome. <laughs> what are some of the other dominant countries in competitive cheerleading? Canada, for sure. Canada will take it home. They're so good. Um, they're definitely, because the U.S. definitely dominates in cheerleading just because it's been here the longest. Um, but Canada is right there with us. They're only in, I think, two or three divisions where they dominate 
um, every year or every other year, every other year. But other than that, there hasn't been too many other countries that are coming and I would say dominating in a division other than Canada, but there are some countries like Chile is definitely stepping up. They're making it in the top 10 every year. And for to be a different country or cheerleading is so new to even be able to make it to worlds, let alone make it in the top 10 is really huge for them. And I think that's so awesome. Yeah, that's great. So if you're Looking, you know, this is something you've spent so many years on and, you know, you've talked about fashion, you talked about the way that you're thinking about your next chapter in cheerleading. Is it a little scary? I think it's scary <laughs> that when you spend so many years on a sport and then it just like it, it has to, your you like grow past the institutional development of it. So it's like there's all of these opportunities for cheerleading, particularly at the youth level and then at the collegiate level. Then it feels like even though there's opportunities after that, it drops off considerably. No, it does. And it is just a little bit scary, you know, going into cheerleading and spending all these years just pouring your heart into it. It's it definitely is a scary thought just to think like a lot of cheerleaders that are so deep into it. Like once you're getting older and you know, the doors are starting to close for you. It's almost just like, Oh my God, what am I going to do with myself? Like, what am I going to do every day? And that thought's just a little bit scary, but if you're able to just, you know, just relax and just try to find hobbies and things that you're into, then it should be, you know, you should be able to do it okay, but it's definitely a little different, <laughs> even this. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I'll end by asking you, like, what do you wish that the documentary showed more of? Or what do you want people to know? What takeaways do you want them to have when they're watching cheer or when they're thinking about competitive cheerleading? That's a hard one, just because it did show a lot. I kind of wish it showed, I guess, just a little bit more of the struggle, kind of just the struggle with, you know, some things that happened at practice. Um, It did show a lot of injuries, but there were way more injuries and things that had to be done because of it. And I kind of wish it would show it showed that or at least had talked about it. Just because I don't think when it did, other than um, one injury, other than that, we we've ha- we had many more injuries that happened that had a very big impact on your routine. And I wish that you know it, it could have been touched base on that that happens more often than you would think, and you know teams have to make big huge changes that are really stressful like more than you would actually like expect and so I guess that's just one thing that I wish it touched base on but other than that I think it was really well put together yeah certainly and it's it's gotten so much attention it's really been great it's been great to get to know at least the kind of portrayed version of of uh, the personalities on the team and really see what it takes to be a competitive cheerleader. Um, 
So we thank you so much for joining Burn It All Down and we wish you well. We'll be checking <laughs> we'll be checking you out and, and and definitely, you know, welcome you back anytime and we wish you all the success. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, we're going to go talk some more Black history now. Amira, why don't you get us started? Yes. So we are in Black History Month. (laughs) Still, still here. But I did want to take this opportunity. We at Burn It All Down wanted to recognize Black History Month. And we're going to have a very special kind of Black History Month centered hot take available for you shortly. But uh, in this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about some historical uh, Black sporting moments and connecting it to today so we can look at the continuity of the Black experience in sports in in the United States. Yeah, so I'll start. And I want to start by recognizing the centennial of the Negro Leagues. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Negro Leagues, I'm referring to Black baseball leagues um, that were professionalized 100 years ago this week. Now, there was incident, there was, you know, a few different professional Black baseball teams for both men and women as early as the 1880s. And you saw various professional clubs. So the Dolly Vardens was a Black women's professional baseball club team. You saw semi-pro teams. But it wasn't until Rube Foster walks into a room in Kansas, in Kansas City, 100 years ago this week, to formalize uh, talks about a national, a Negro National League, and creates a governing body, the National Association of Colored Professional Baseball Clubs. And this brings together some of the disparate places that Black baseball was being played at the time. And it is initially composed of eight teams, including the Chicago American Giants, Chicago Giants, the Cuban Stars, Dayton Macros, the Detroit Stars, the Indianapolis ABCs, the Kansas City Monarchs, and the St. Louis Giants. Now, over the next 40 years, Black baseball would become one of the biggest economic contributors in the community. It made uh, Black business people a lot of money. It was a focal site of community formation and downtime and a chance to come and celebrate together. It uh, launched the careers of many sports writers, and it was typical of what Black people had to do in times of intense state-sanctioned racialized segregation and that's build their own institutions. And I think one of the things to remember about Black baseball is that it's not existing by itself. It's occurring in a moment where Black colleges and Black medical facilities and schools and sports leagues of variety are emerging in response to the fact that the doors of other establishments have been shut to us, have been shut to the Black community. And so that is the place in which black baseball emerges and it's has you know multiple decades of thriving it reshapes a few times you have the the colored world series and the negro world series they have all-star essentially all-star games they have competitions against white teams and then of course between the sports writers and 
fan support and the players themselves, there's a push to integrate the majors. It's a constant tension between investing and building up your own institutions and still trying to break into mainstream white institutions. And unfortunately, a result of that tension means that a lot of times the cost of integration is the destruction of your own Black institutions. And that's one of the things that we also see happening with the Negro Leagues. Um, and we see when Jackie breaks formally breaks the color line in 47, you start to see a slow exodus. And when the major leagues are coming and getting these players, they're not compensating Effa Manley. They're not compensating the other managers of the Negro Leagues and is devaluing it. And so this is when the women that I write about in baseball come in as gate attractions in, in different ways to continue to amplify the league and make it relevant. The most successful team that continues to thrive is the Indianapolis Clowns, which is a, essentially like the Harlem Globetrotters. They do tricks um, and stuff on, on the court. And unfortunately, by the really by the mid-50s, but certainly by the 60s, you have the league all but being gone. And I think that that's a really important thing to consider when we're looking at the celebration of the league, because if we pull it to today, we see the dearth of Black American players in baseball. Obviously, you know that I've been heartbroken because the Red Sox used to have, we used to have Black people. And then they, uh, you know, in one fell swoop, let Mookie and David Price go, you know, like it's, and there's there's not that many, you know, Black American players left in the majors. And it kind of feels now that you could feel like that was inevitable. You could forget that there was a moment in which baseball was a major, major sport in the black community. And I think that's some of the importance here is that it's easy to feel like what we have at present is, is how it's always been. That it's always been inevitable that, that basketball or football are, you know, predominantly black sports, or it's always been inevitable that, Black kids uh, and and girls don't play baseball when we have a history to the contrary of that. And I think that's some of the importance of remembering this um, history. And so I'm really excited to see some of the efforts happening around the centennial of the Negro Leagues um, in celebration. So uh, the MLB and the MLB's Players Association announced a, a million dollar donation to the uh, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, which shout out to Bob Kendrick. He's the president of the museum. If you haven't had a chance to go and you ever find yourself um, in Kansas City, please, please stop by the um, NLBM. It's a tremendous Institute that is really working so hard to preserve the memory of this league. But also, um, there's going to be a celebration and recognition of the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues in June. There's a patch that will be worn by all major league teams. And um, I'm really excited about the kind of recognition. And I hope that we can push it to not just be performative, but it can co coincide with real development of the game um, that diversifies and, and creates equity in, in access to baseball. And just I'll finish here 
with this. If you want to read more about the Negro Leagues and you want to, you know, I highly recommend Friend of the Pod, J.K. Taylor's piece this week about Rube Foster's vision. That's on Baseball Prospectus called We Are the Ship, All Outs the Sea, a famous quote from Foster. And also of that title, We Are the Ship, Kadir Nelson's beautiful beautiful book on the history of the Negro Leagues is absolutely stirring in its artistic rendition of the leagues and a great history of it as well. So go out, read about the leagues, look forward to more celebrations. And that's kind of what I'm thinking about in terms of Black history and sports this week. Shireen, what do you got? I have a couple of different things. And thank you very much for all that stuff. I think that just as a non-Black person of color, I think it's really important to keep understanding that you don't only have to wait till February to learn about the contributions in the history of Black folks. Like, don't do that. It's it's not great. Anyways, this is a reminder to myself, of course. There's a couple of people within the sports history thing. And I've been emboldened in my knowledge by Amira. And thank you for that. Um, I'm, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Angela James. I'm going to talk about Angela James because I stay in her. And you know how much I love Canadian women's hockey. And she's a stalwart of that program. For those of you who don't know who Angela James is, I'm so sorry, but you're about to. Angela James is actually from Toronto. She was born in 64. She was known, and although I don't like these terms, she was known as the Wayne Gretzky of women's hockey. I don't love that for obvious reasons. I just think of her as Angela James. I don't think of anything about Wayne Gretzky, actually. Anyway, and it's perfectly amazing to think about Angela James as Angela James. Um, she dominated in the 80s and 90s in hockey internationally, and she led the Canadian women to four world championships in 90, 92, 94, 97. She, she was one of the first three women to ever be inducted into the Ice Hockey Federation Hall of Fame, which is the international one. And then she was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2010. And she was one of the first two women, the first openly gay athlete and the second black athlete. So I think this is this is really important. I mean, there's obviously more people that I wanted to talk about. And I follow a sports sociologist named Dr. Onella Nzindukimana, and she goes by Orn Runs Wild. Uh, or one runs wild on Twitter, and she's at St. FX University in Nova Scotia. She collects so much really cool historical information about Black athletes in Ontario and in Canada generally. And she actually pointed out something about Willie O'Ree, who is was known as the first Black um, hockey player in the NHL. And there is potential showings for the documentary that was made about him called Willie O'Ree. And just called Willie, sorry. And they tried to do an on-demand in different Canadian cities. It needs to be noted, and Dr. Courtney Sito noted this, that a lot of the NHL players of those cities did not even tweet out a link. So what happens with on-demand film is that you have to buy 50 tickets minimum for the documentary and then we'll show it. Well, it didn't happen in many cities. I think it was only like Calgary and Montreal that it, they were able to go forward. So that's something to be said. Like, does a hockey community actually want to be inclusive when NHL teams in those places aren't amplifying the stories and the history of black hockey players? Like, come on. But what Ornella did point out was that it wasn't necessarily only Willie O'Reilly as the first black player. There was in 57 
Quebec Aces, which were the minors, it was a team in the minor leagues, named Stan Chuk Maxwell. He was also from a Mi'kmaq community in Toronto, Nova Scotia. So he wore Bruins jersey as well and suited up with Willie O'Ree, but ultimately ended up staying in the juniors, which is why he doesn't get the same level of accolades as Willie O'Ree does. But I think that's really interesting to find out these tidbits of information that are actually really crucial. And, you know, I just found out last night, and this has nothing to do with sports, which is part of my own interest. There's a story about, and I retweeted this, there's a story about the only black passenger on the Titanic. And I want to find out more about that. And I will keep you all posted because I will start finding out about that. I found the link and someone sent it to me in French. And I am going to do some digging because I just, I think, and he was in the first class cabins. So I, I want to find out about that. Anyways, that. And there's one more thing I I don't want to take up too much time, but I'm very excited about this. This isn't historical, but it's very, very important, meaning it's happening in the present. I am super obsessed with black girls surfing. I'm very obsessed with women of color surfing generally. But this is something I really love. And there was this really beautiful article in Marie Claire about these African women denying or Marie Claire, as everyone likes to say. um, It says African women denying stereotypes to ride waves. It's by Olivia Adams. I, we can put a link to this in the show. I don't like the lead of this, but I'll blame editors. Anyway, it's talking about in Senegal and different places. There's a woman named Rhonda Harper, who's the founder and coach of Black Girl Surf. And she literally is going to these places and Western African, North African countries and is getting, teaching women and and, and, and literally creating spaces for surfing. And I, I just think this is really beautiful and it's very relevant because there is a huge lack on in surfing of, of black women and women of color generally. And I've followed surfing in Bangladesh, I've followed surfing in Iran, and I will continue to do so, surfing in Palestine of women. And I think this is as beautiful and as important as we know surfing is becoming It's becoming an Olympic sport this year, and hopefully we will see one of those athletes from Senegal. So I think that'll be that'll be really important. And we will keep you and her name is Khadjdu Sambe, and she's from Senegal. And hopefully she'll be part of the Olympics, which would be historic. So it kind of is relevant. Anyways, that's my thing. That is all amazing. I want to talk a little bit about black quarterbacks and in particular a black, a legendary black quarterback that a lot of people don't know about, which is Marlon Briscoe, who made history in 1968 with the Denver Broncos as the first black quarterback to start a game in the NFL. This came after he was drafted into the league as a cornerback and before he was forced to change positions to wide receiver. Um, Mm, How does that sound familiar? (laughs) Yeah. Which might really um, sound familiar to a lot of what's going on today. And um, I actually was able, was lucky enough to be able to interview Mr. Briscoe for a few hours um, a few years ago in a story where I, that I was writing about Cam Newton and black quarterbacks. And I was, you know, surprised at how much of his story I didn't know. (laughs) So I thought I'd share a little bit with you all today. Briscoe's journey started when he was nine years old and went out for kind of the peewee football. And he went to the quarterback line because he worshiped Johnny Unitas. And this is in Omaha, Nebraska. And the coach looked at him like he was nuts and said, son, do you want to go to the running back line, the wide receiver line, or the defensive back line? That's what the coach asked the nine-year-old, but Briscoe didn't budge. And he said, no, sir, I want to play quarterback. And, um, you know, Briscoe had said that that to, to his credit, 
which is a little generous, but the coach just said, okay, son, you're a quarterback, you know, just went with it. And so Briscoe ended up developing into a phenomenal scrambling quarterback in high school. And um, when he realized that his first choice of college, the University of Nebraska, wasn't willing to let a black man play quarterback, he ended up at Omaha University for college, where he led an explosive offense by throwing for 5,114 yards and setting 22 school records. But despite his success in college, his greatest challenge, of course, was convincing an NFL team that he could play quarterback. In 1968, only one black quarterback had ever taken a snap in the modern NFL, which was Willie Thrower, a backup quarterback on the Chicago Bears, um, who took a few snaps in relief of George Blanda during one game in 1953. You know, and as Briscoe told me, they denied access to that position to the black man because it was held in such high esteem because it was a position of power on the football field. So it wasn't really that surprising when Briscoe was drafted in the 14th round of the NFL draft back when there were so many rounds as a defensive back by the Denver Denver Broncos, but he did not go down without a fight. Briscoe went up to the general manager of the Broncos and told them that he would play quarterback, cornerback, excuse me, cornerback, which is on defense, so that he would play in the defense, but only if they gave him a three-day trial at quarterback. And he said they thought I was crazy. How how does this like 14th round pick negotiate his own contract? (laughs) (laughs) But Briscoe was really smart because his college coach had told him that Denver was the only team in the league that held their practices and training camps right outside in the city in front of media and fans. So he knew that if he was good enough in those try in that three day tryouts, that it would be seen by people other than just the team. And it worked like he was very impressive in that in that three day tryout. And he was uh, one of a bunch of quarterbacks that kind of made it to, you know, that kind of made an impact. He told me that all of the other quarterbacks would get 10 reps, but he would only get five or six. He would always have to go last, but he made enough of an impression that Denver Post columnist Dick Connor wrote a column advocating for the coaching staff to give Briscoe a chance to be quarterback. Now here's a twist. Lou Saban, noted racist, was the head of the coaching staff, was he was the head coach. So he wasn't quite swayed, and Briscoe was named the starting defensive end. He he ended up injuring his hamstring in preseason, and at that point, Briscoe feared everything was done, but it actually ended up being a blessing in disguise because he set out the first two games of the season, which means he didn't get a chance to be impressive at the defensive end position. And during those first few games, he was the offense was horrible. So when he came in for that third game, he went to his locker and found a quarterback jersey hanging there. He was the backup quarterback, but again, the game against the uh, Boston Patriots, the offense struggled so much during those first two games, those those first few series that with just ten minutes left in the game, Briscoe came onto the field and he ended up almost leading the team back to victory. He was nicknamed the magician. After that, the next game, he said, when he he was named the starter for the next game, and there was so much excitement around his talent that a thousand more people showed up than had come for the, the previous game. 
And he ended up for most of that season splitting playing time with their quarterback who was injured, um, who once his collarback collarbone healed tensley was his name briscoe and tensley end up splitting playing time but briscoe was convinced that he would be able that he had showed enough that he would be able to take over the position the following year but this is where the story gets really sad is that coach saban had other ideas during the offseason briscoe found out that saban had signed a quarterback from canada and he had he while he had been forced to start a black quarterback the previous year Saban was determined that that would never happen again. Briscoe demanded to be out of his his contract and Saban obliged, but not before calling all other NFL teams and encouraging them not to sign Briscoe. He ended up signing on with the Buffalo Bills as a wide receiver, a position he had never played before. And in a twist, he ended up rooming with the the first black, black quarterback to be named a starter for the season in Buffalo, which was Joe Harris. He watched as Harris got all of this hate mail, and he wondered why he hadn't received hate mail himself. He ended up finding out that one of his teammates would hide the hate mail from him, so would intercept the hate mail from his locker and make sure it never got to him um, when he was on the Broncos. And ended up being that Briscoe, that Saban became the coach of the Bills the year later. So, of course, he had to get rid of Harris and Briscoe. Briscoe ended up going to the Miami Dolphins <laughs> as a wide receiver, and he was on that Super Bowl team, the undefeated team that uh, didn't lose a game. So he was a wide receiver on that team, and his teammate and friend, Bob Greasy, a white quarterback, was universally praised for his sc- scrambling abilities, the same scrambling abilities that black quarterbacks were and still are criticized for. So in that story, you just see how much effort was put into keeping black men out of the quarterback position and how time and time again, they had to prove themselves. And, you know, today we are seeing a bunch of black quarterbacks thriving in the NFL, you know, but it's, it's not without a lot of that same racism, a lot of that, those same stereotypes that Marlon Briscoe had to deal with back in 1968. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that, you know, that's the point is that this is all very much living history. Black history is American history. It is, you know, worthy of consideration all day, every day of the year, of course. But I'm glad that we do have moments where at least we can pause and reflect and say, what are the continuities? What are the shared struggles? Where where do we go from here? And there's such a rich history of um, resistance, of tenacity, of determination, and really instructive about the fact that the things that we're seeing in, in Black sports today are not always new. And I think it's just really important to reflect on where we've been and, and be very kind of clear-eyed together about where we're going. All right, now it is time for the burn pile, the segment we wait for all week and build up to. Shireen, do you want to get us started? Sure. I had about 10 things to burn by Tuesday, but I've narrowed it down. I just want to offer a trigger warning about anti-Blackness and police brutality here because some of the details of this are really jarring. I saw a piece about the... Eastern Illinois University swim team, and the only black swimmer on that team, whose name is Jalen Butler, um, he was assaulted by police on his way back with the team 
on the team bus from a swimming meet. They had, you know, stopped and at a rest stop to pull over and stretch their legs. And they were coming from, you know, like I said, a swim meet. And this is a quote from Jalen Butler directly about this. Quote, I was blessed to have parents who gave me the proper tools for reacting to law enforcement, which they hoped I'd never use. It could have gone a different way. And he's he's now 20 years old. This incident happened about almost a year ago. And then he says, a kid like me who has stayed on the straight and narrow could have been killed. I didn't resist at all. I compiled before they told me to do anything. Unquote. Now, Jalen Butler got off the bus like everybody else. There's huge signage of the bus being a school bus. He was wearing a varsity athlete jacket to match the bus, like all the other athletes on said bus. He got off to take a selfie with a sign, I believe that said about buckling, the importance of buckling seatbelts and how it's the law, which is completely normal. And within a couple seconds, there was like cop cars everywhere. And two specifically cops got up and he, you know, put his hands in the air, dropped his phone, and he got on the ground before they even approached him. They came to him, they pressed his face into the snow and had a knee in his back. And the bus driver's account of what happened was he was startled and he said something, something's not right. And this bus driver is actually a former Navy vet. And he was like, something was completely off. And I yelled at them to say, you've got the wrong guy. He's a part of us. Apparently, the Rock Island Sheriff's Department and these two cops said they thought Jalen had hijacked the bus. Like a young, fit athlete who's wearing the same jacket as the bus and the signage on the bus of Eastern Illinois. And 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 so anyway, I'm bringing this up because ACLU has filed charges against the Rock Island Sheriff's Department and has named the two officers. Um, this is a constant reminder of how Black men are criminalized and a 19-year-old at the time, an athlete, he can't even take a selfie without cops telling him, and they told him that they would, if he moved, they would blow his head off. This is enraging constantly. And it's it's one thing to say that we do our part, we do our part. But if the Rock Island Sheriff's Department is not taken to task on this, they are not held accountable. And this isn't about the fact that he's a 4.0. This isn't about the fact that he's like an all-star swimmer. This is a fact about criminalizing young Black bodies. It is not Okay. I mean, Jalen had that team to back him up, but still to be put in that position is just like, he was completely traumatized. It affected him at school. It affected his ability to do anything. And there's no doubt that this would be traumatizing. Like the after effects and the mental health burdens carried by these young men is just not acceptable. It's a form of torture. And I want to burn all of that. I'm so grateful to the ACLU for taking this so thankful to Jalen himself and his family for their bravery about this because this coming out in media again is another burden and so much emotional psychological labor. So, you know, if there's a way to support the ACLU here, please do it. And they take on cases that require this kind of attention. So I want to burn the Rock Island Sheriff's Department. You're fucking racist bigots. And I swear, like, this is, I hate all of it. Just burn. 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 All right, another trigger warning for uh, sexual abuse here. Going back to the Nasser case for another burn um, because, you know, it just keeps coming. This week, I guess the good news is that this week, former Michigan State gymnastics coach 
Katie Kathy Clagus was found guilty of lying to the P- the police. The 65-year-old could be sentenced up, up to four years in prison. Uh, this was the gymnastic coach that was told about Nasser as far back as 1997, when Larissa Boyce and a friend who was chosen to remain non- anonymous were teenagers and came to Kathy and she discount dismissed their complaints and she supported Nasser so much that when he was a, when he was let go from Michigan State University because of sex abuse she had her gymnast write him letters to support him <laughs> because she didn't believe it was true but the part i really want to burn here is an ESPN report from uh that came out during this trial another woman came to ESPN on Friday of last week and told ESPN that in 2011, Kathy Clagus recalled complaints about Nasser from other gymnasts. So the woman said that she had also raised concerns. Her daughter was eight years old when she saw Nasser alone in the basement of Michigan State's field house during a gymnastics camp. The woman was not even aware that her daughter needed to see a doctor and learned afterwards that her daughter had felt uncomfortable and that his treatment was weird and it hurt. So she approached Kathy Clagus and Kathy Clagus told the woman that she had heard similar complaints in the past from other young gymnasts and that younger gymnasts were simply not yet used to seeing doctors by themselves. Oh, the girls call him Dr. Larry. The woman remembers Clagus telling her. Clagus then went through and talked about his credentials and said how lucky this woman was to have Nasser treating her. So... (sighs) (laughs) It's just another case of the fact that people knew about Nasser and so many abuses could have and should have been prevented. Kathy Glegas on the stand did not apologize. She continued to say that she did not remember any of this and that she had no recollection of ever being told about Nasser. So as the um, prosecutor said, you know, she continued to lie until the, the last moment. She never did take, adva- take responsibility for it. So throw it onto the burn pile. Burn. 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 Amira? Yeah, um, like you, and Shireen said there was a lot of burnable things, and I and I kept thinking uh, for a lot of them I saw this year. Like, are we still on this right? So like Stephen Flamhart, a life member of U.S. Soccer, who used his time at the annual meeting to literally try to censure the U.S. Women's team for their showman, <laughs> their sportsmanship yeah. and goal celebration. Yeah. I was like, are we still on this? So, it's annoying. Jim Justice, who's the governor of West Virginia, who also randomly coaches a girls basketball team. Um, and when the team who was predominantly black with two black coaches playing against him got into a little tussle, then left the court, he later lambasted them and said, I don't know what to tell you. They're just a bunch of thugs. And I'm like, really? We're still doing this? Well, yes, we are. But the thing that feels familiar yet again that I, I wanted to rest on to burn was the case in Connecticut of three high school girls represented by their mothers filing a lawsuit over a policy of transgender athletes participating in sports. And the reason why I want to rest here is I'm really upset at conservative PACs that use this is common, right? They use people to go after this. And we've talked in the, on the show, we've burned many times. A lot of these bills that we see coming up in Arizona, I burned two weeks ago, um, their bill. This lawsuit is 
fronted by three three girls in in Connecticut. And it's particularly chilling because they're targeting, they're making blanket statements, but they're also targeting Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood, who we've talked about on the show. And um, shout out to friend of the show, Katie Barnes, their piece, They Are the Champions, um, Profiles, Yearwood in particular. Um, check it out if, if you're not familiar with their stories. But they mention both Terry and Andrea by name. They have this weird matrix where they're arguing that Collectively, they took, quote, more than 85 opportunities to participate away from female track athletes. And it's more of the same drivel that we've seen in other places. But the fact that the families and and this this pack are putting three young girls in a position to be the face of this, they have them on the steps reading these statements I want them to know that they're not the enemies, that they're not. I, I wish somebody was there to say that somebody else gaining access to space is not harming you in this way. And instead, an opportunity for solidarity and community building and equity and inclusion has turned into the lessons that they're taking away is, is detrimental or harmful. A lawsuit that by name targets Terry and Andrea is is disgusting and harmful. So this is, yes, familiar because we've seen it in many states, but it's a particularly awful form of it. And I looked at their press conference with them standing on the steps and all I could feel was, was sad. Like, I don't, it's not even anger. It's just this kind of deep well of sadness and disappointment. And that's kind of where I'm at with that. And so I, I want to burn down this lawsuit for sure. But I also just wish there was more collective conversation and less eagerness to use this as a way to adjudicate people that you want to render disposable, disposable and to legislate people out of their existence and I, and I wish that these girls did not become the mouthpiece of that because then you have five girls who are by name thrown together on either side of this that could have been teammates. And it's disappointing that this is where we're at. So burn it down. Burn. Burn. All right, after all that burning, it is time to lift lift up some badasses this week. First of all, I want to congratulate former Burn It All Down guest and New York Liberty player Kia Nurse, who won the Susie um, Batkovich medal and the league MVP of the Australian Women's Basketball League, the WNBL, the Canadian National. I wonder who wrote this one. <laughs> the Canadian <laughs> He's the first import to do this, an average 21.3 points per game. We also want to congratulate U.S. Women's National Team anchor and World Cup champion Crystal Dunn for 100 caps woo, with woo. the team. Genevieve Paris hit a home run in Division I softball yes, against, my girl. against Alabama after giving birth 19 months ago. This She did this in just her first start with UCLA. Amazing. Sarah Haba, a Tunisian, is the first woman to reach Mecca by bicycle. 
it was it took her 53 days to go on the pilgrimage. Um, Megan Youngren became one of 63 women to officially qualify for the U.S. Olympic Marathon trials at the California International Marathon. Her time was two minutes and 43 seconds. And this means that on February 29th, she will be the first openly transgender athlete to compete at the U.S. Olympic Marathon trials. We also want to give a shout out to Zaya Wade, who at just 12 years old, the daughter of Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union Wade made, inspired the world this week when she announced, just be true to yourself, because what's the point in being on this earth if you're going to try to be someone you're not? It's like you're not even living as yourself. It was so great to officially meet you this week, uh, Zaya, and you are making such a difference. And then can I get a drum roll, please? The winner is the girls varsity basketball team at Ignacio High School, Southern Colorado. The team united with the missing and murdered indigenous women movement by taking a team photo with body paint on each coach and player. Everyone on the team had a red or black handprint painted over their mouths to show solidarity for Native American women who have gone missing or were killed. Um, The red handprint is symbolic because red is the only color that spirits can see in Native American culture. And the mouth covered placement gives voice to those who have been displaced. Um, That's what the advocates of the movement said. And the majority of the team is part of the Utes tribe. So we want to just give a shout out to them. We are so inspired by their advocacy. All right. I think we made it here to the end. Shireen, what's good? Oh, my God. First of all, I'm so happy that Jeremy Roenick was fired from NBC. I'm just going to start with that because he's a sexist asshole and he was making what everyone calls inappropriate comment. He was like sexually harassing a coworker, and I'm glad his ass is fired. Hate that guy. Um, It's family day weekend in Canada and I'm enjoying it tremendously. I'm also enjoying Netflix tremendously and may or may not have a low key crush on Catholic priests. I saw a movie, the two popes and loved it. I haven't seen parasite yet, but I think (laughs) did you just say the two popes? Yes. I know. I just didn't go where you thought it would. Did you just Um, say you had a crush on Catholic priests? Maybe, maybe. I also, I have constantly been taking recommendations from Amira. I finished watching Cheer, watched all of Sex Education a couple of weeks ago. I finished that in like a week. Um, I finished watching Fleabag, hence the Catholic Priest. Uh, that's yes. a love, love it. Um, I also want to just shout out Dr. Janelle Joseph, uh, Sabrina Razak, and Dr. Margaret McNeil at the U of T Kinesiology Department because I've been hanging out there. And I'm very grateful to Jessica Luther, who's constantly giving me Dave Patel updates on his, you know, cinematography life and where movies he'll be in. Lastly, happy birthday to Meg Linehan. I love you. And what else? Everything's good. I have an espresso machine now, so I am very well caffeinated, as you can tell. Yeah, I have a lot. (laughs) <laughs> wow that's amazing was <laughs> just like how is that possible <laughs> like, more caffeinated <laughs> oh gosh uh, amira 
Yeah, I am excited because I will be heading to Portland this week to see our friend Jules Boykoff and speak at Pacific University. So I'm really excited to go see him and meet with the students there and talk. I'll be talking about the history of Black women in the Olympics. So I'm really looking forward to that. And of course, P.S. I Still Love You dropped this week. And Jordan Fisher, who, as you all know, is one of my faves starred in it. And the biggest moment around that was not even the movie itself, but the fact that my preteen cuddled with me on the couch while we watched it together. And she was only slightly moody. And so, you know, (laughs) you take that when you can get it. I finally saw Parasite last night and it's good. (laughs) It is. It's so good. Wow. Uh, What? I mean, I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. Um, And also, I'm shocked Amira let me say this, but um, we are on an official countdown to the 90 Day Fiance tell-all. TLC has a countdown on their network like you would for like a political debate or an election. And I think it's deserved. So that is it's so deserved. I'm so ready. What did Mike do? I'm so excited. Wait, wait, what is this? 90 Day Fiance, the the television show. Okay, 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 okay. All right. Well, friends, I think that's all for today. <laughs> um, you can follow us on Twitter at BurnItDownPod. Uh, send us an email, BurnItAllDownPod at gmail.com. That's also our website, BurnItAllDownPod.com. We're on Facebook at Burn it all Down. And what would really help us, a little Valentine for us, if you will, it would be to go to – Apple podcast and leave a review, leave a five star review. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ask for it. Because that helps really (laughs) us find other people who really, as Jess would say, need this podcast in our lot their lives, but don't yet know it exists. We will uh, be back next week, friends. Thank you all.